I Will Trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Hello, my name is Jared Dean and welcome to the first of the Hollywell Podcast Brexit focused episodes. So this will be a monthly look at the Brexit issue and how it might impact on the people of the Northwest. Before we get into the detail of this first podcast, I think it's important that we set the context for why Hollywell Trust is taking this approach. As is well known, Brexit is creating real challenges for people of Northern Ireland. Collectively, we did not vote for Brexit. The electorate of the Foyle constituency in particular in the Northwest gave a clear message that Brexit is not something that we want, with 78.3% voting to remain. So the decision to take Britain out of the European Union will be felt most at the margins, on the periphery, far away from the seats of power. And the people in the Northwest are acutely aware of what it's like to live on this periphery. We are on the edge of the island of Ireland and on the edge of Europe. We're well removed from Belfast, Dublin, London and Brussels. Already we live with decisions and the lack of government investment that have served to marginalise us. And Brexit has the potential to amplify the impact of these. The fear locally is that we will bear the brunt of the Brexit decision. A decision that we didn't vote for. The impact of a micro level decision will be felt most by people living along the border. Right on the edge of the EU. Already... Brexit has created confusion and uncertainty on many issues. The border, protection of rights, peace funding and support, structural fund support, farming subsidies, etc. And this confusion has led to immediate impacts such as the loss of value that sterling has against the euro, which impacts directly on the pockets of many cross-border workers. Local people are unclear about Brexit and how it will impact on their lives. Community groups The support the most vulnerable in society are also facing under uncertainty with added challenges of reduced budgets due to the absence of a functioning executive. Last week we released our podcast special on Brexit in Ireland, a focus that was delivered by Tony Connolly. And this Brexit series is a natural extension to that and a follow-on from that. We're funded by the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland through the Brexit Dialogue Fund. And what we're going to do... Through this podcast, we hope to start minimising the impact that this fear and lack of understanding about the issue of Brexit might have in the local community. And we're delighted to do that with the support of our Brexit expert, Paul Gosling. I'm delighted to do it as well. We've given a wee bit of the rationale, a wee bit of the background about what it is that we're trying to do through this podcast and through the Brexit focus. But today, what we really want to do is bring it back to basics and give people that introductory, that Brexit 101, what it is we're talking about when we're talking about Brexit. The simplest question of all, what is Brexit? Brexit is leaving the European Union. At the present, United Kingdom is in. It joined in 1973 on exactly the same date that the Irish Republic did. The Irish Republic is staying in the European Union. The United Kingdom is leaving. And that means there are a lot of questions about the future relationship between the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, and the Irish Republic. For those of us that may have been under a rock for the last while, how exactly did Brexit come about? Well, ever since the United Kingdom joined the European Union, as it was then the European Economic Community, there's been a lot of people within the United Kingdom that didn't want to be inside. If you go back to those early days, you had people like Tony Benn who campaigned against joining. 
And ever since then, you had some people in the Labour Party, such as Tony Benn, who wanted us to leave. And increasingly, you had people within the Conservative Party who also wanted to leave, people like John Redwood, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's been this long-running division, in particular within the Conservative Party, between people that wanted to stay and people who wanted to leave. The people who wanted to stay said, basically, the European Union did two things. Firstly, it uh, it gave you peace, because after all, that's the reason why the European Union was created in the first place, to avoid a Second World War becoming a Third World War, and in particular, to ensure that it was good relationships between France and Germany. And the second issue is that it created a single market for goods within the European Union, and to a lesser extent, services as well. And that means you don't have to pay taxes when you are selling things from one country to another, what things Mm -hmm. called customs and tariffs. And because you had this customs and tariff-free trade, it meant that it was a lot easier to trade from one country to another. So there were no barriers, basically, from trading between the United Kingdom and Ireland. And that was one of the big advantages, and it was one of the things that was uh, was often said was a real advantage of being within the European Union, that you mm-hmm. had this free trade within the European Union. So there was that resistance to being part of the European Union, and that led us ultimately to a referendum. Yeah, just, to, you, just to say, Joe, yeah. that, that, that there were two arguments why people wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. One was they felt that they weren't setting laws and they wanted to return to what they called the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, which played a big part in the Brexit referendum, we will talk about in a moment, which is the cost of membership. Because actually, you know, there, there are rules that come with being a member of the single market. And those rules are basically set within Brussels rather than within Westminster. Westminster, the, the uh, parliament there, has to abide by the rules set by the European Union. So people were unhappy about the idea of rules being set for, by another power, mm-hmm. but also they're unhappy about the fact that we had to pay into the system and the bill was very high. And that was another reason why there was an argument for leaving the European Union. Ultimately, you did mention the referendum. We ended up making the choice. It was a simple yes, stay, or I can't remember which way around it was, actually. It was either stay or go. Can you describe maybe the politics at the time of the referendum and how it came to be called by David Cameron and whether he thought it was politically opportune or was he keeping a promise or what was the circumstance there? Yes, uh, I mean, basically, as I I said before, there's been this long-running division within the Conservative Party in particular about whether the United Kingdom should be within the European Union Mm -hmm. or outside. And it's been a problem for all sorts of governments. Uh, John Major had this a big problem. Uh, David Cameron had a big problem. And uh, leaders of the Conservative Party between those two prime ministers also had big problems. So David Cameron felt basically, well, this was an opportunity to heal the rift, a rift that was particularly within the Conservative Party, but also across much of the rest of society, in particular in England. And basically the idea was, well, we'll probably... Uh, decide to stay within the European Union and this will heal things and we'll move forward as a united country within a united European Union. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in my opinion, the big problem was that you had two sides during the referendum that didn't tell the truth. And I think this is where a lot of our problems came from. I mean, clearly, on the Leave side, the big argument, although people talked about the fact that it was £350 million a week that was being paid into the European Union, which could go into the National Health Service. Personally, I think the big argument, particularly within England and Wales, was against migration. And people voted to leave more than people voted to stay, and people voted to leave because they wanted to reduce the number of people coming in from other countries, in particular, I think, from Eastern European, mm-hmm. Eastern Europe. And that was the, the, the big argument that was within there, the idea that uh, if we leave the European Union, we have less migration, and by implication, people felt 
that they were more likely to get employment and their families were more likely to get employment. Mm. On the uh, stay side, in my opinion, the government really didn't tell the truth because they suggested it was as if the economy of the United Kingdom would fall off a cliff the day after the referendum vote. Now, clearly, that didn't happen. We had Mm. some economic pain, but the economy didn't collapse. And I think the fact that, if you like, George Osborne and David Cameron over-egged that pudding, made claims that people didn't really believe, it devalued the, 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 the stay campaign. That, uh, so, and I think that the, you know, the Remain campaign suffered because it didn't tell the truth about the economic consequences of Brexit, just as the Leave campaign didn't tell the truth about actually the fact that uh, you weren't going to get £350 million a week that would go into the National Health Service. Yeah. When is it likely to happen? How is it likely to happen? Is it, what's, what's the timetable for the for the leave to, to actually leave according to the bill that's going through the house of commons at the moment mm. it's march 2019 that we leave however there are doubts as to whether that leave date is realistic there's already talk about the fact that you have a two-year or perhaps longer transition deal so we don't actually know the leave date okay. at the moment it's intended to be march 2019 but there are pressures which mean, firstly, the formal leave date may be extended, and secondly, because of transition, we may behave as if we're still within the European Union, even after we've formally left it. And in the lead-up until the first projected leave date of March 19, what's happening now? And we'll get on in a wee second to talk about what's happening in the last couple of weeks, but in the lead-up to the last couple of weeks, what has been the negotiation or the, the conversations between Britain and the European Union? Well, there's two stages of negotiations about leaving the European Union, and they're called phase one and phase two. Mm -hmm. Phase one is what's just been concluded. And phase one was about three matters that had to be dealt with before you could move on to phase two. And those three matters were the idea of what the pension liabilities and other costs are, the divorce bill, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, what's going to happen about nationals of other countries, and what happens about the Irish border. So if we just go into those in, in a bit of detail, uh, there's going to have to be a payment, and it's, it turns out it's probably going to be around €40 billion. Euro. Mm-hmm. There has to be a payment by the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. This isn't a penalty. It's because the United Kingdom entered into various agreements as a member of the European Union, and it's obliged to continue to pay those liabilities, those commitments, even after it leaves. So, for example, because it was a joint member of the European Union, People were employed by the European Union, the European Commission, and they were partly employed by the United Kingdom. So when they retire as individuals, the United Kingdom has got part of the responsibility to pay those pensions. So that's one element of it. Another thing is that the European Union uh, entered into various long-term commitments, and the UK was a part of that decision-making process. So, for example, ongoing European Union funding programmes will continue and other programmes will continue, then the United Kingdom's got a, a commitment, a legal commitment to continue to paying into those. So that's, mm. the, that's the divorce bill element. The second thing is that there's all sorts of people, and I, I speak personally, my son uh, is a, has a German passport, uh, my stepdaughter has a German passport, they were born in Germany, mm. but they live in Northern Ireland. And this actually applies to uh, millions of people who live within the Europe- United Kingdom mm. who are members of other European countries. So I'm not talking here about Ireland because there's different arrangements between Ireland yeah. and the United Kingdom. So. But there are people from Germany and Poland, Italy, uh, France who live within the uh, United Kingdom 
and it had to be decided what was going to happen to them. Secondly, you've got about a million people from the United Kingdom who live in other parts of the European Union. For example, people who've retired in Spain. So there had to be a decision in principle about what happens to them, about their rights to use the health service in those other countries, and whether they've got a right to stay in the United Kingdom or in terms of the UK nationals, whether they've got a right to stay in the other countries. And the third element, which is the one we know lots about, is what is the future of the Irish border. So those three things had to be dealt with as phase one in order to move on to phase two, Mm -hmm. which will now begin, which considers the, the trade basis for the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. As we're going to be talking over the next number of months, who or what even are the main protagonists? It's like, what are the main organisations, the main bodies, the main institutions that we'll be talking about? And maybe even who are the key players that are have a voice within the, the, the Brexit discussion? In phase one, it was very much between two organisations. In phase three, sorry, phase two, it will be essentially between three organisations. So mm-hmm. in phase one, it was a face-to-face discussion between Michel Barnier, who is the individual who was given responsibility by the European Union, by the European Commission, and by the governments of the European Union to negotiate with the United Kingdom. And from the United Kingdom side, it was David Davis, who is the Minister for Brexit. Uh, In addition to that, on the uh, European Union side, you had uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, who is the President of the European Commission, who's involved in supporting Michel Barnier. And on the United Kingdom side, you had Theresa May, who on certain occasions would step in in place of David Davis. So those have been the two key protagonists, if you like, the two key negotiators yeah. in the first instance. In the third stage, when we, sorry, when we move to phase two, you will have a third factor in this, which is the World Trade Organization. Because basically, if you don't have a specific trade deal in place, then you fall back on the rules of what's called the World Trade Organization. Mm -hmm. And so when we go through phase two, there will also be some more consideration of World Trade Organization rules. Thank you for giving that clear background. Phase one has just concluded and we're about to enter phase two. And phase two, as we've seen in the media and whatever else is mostly about trade and as you just mentioned involves another party involved in it as well how long is that likely to take what's it going to look like um what's the the hope for outcome if you like from phase two well phase two is intended to be completed by october 2018 Mm -hmm. um i think most people would regard that as extremely optimistic because if you look for example at the trade deal that has recently been concluded with canada That took, I think, seven years to negotiate. And that's a simpler trade deal than the one that the United Kingdom wants to achieve with the European Union. So it may well be that trade negotiations are not completed by October 2018. Mm -hmm. So we could be in for a very long process. Um, But it's important to say just why this is important to the future of where we are on the border between Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland. Because... While we've spoken about the fact that there were two sides to phase one, there was also effectively a third and fourth negotiating force in there. And that was the Irish Republic on the European Union side and the Democratic Unionist Party on the United Kingdom side. And they both had uh, particular principles that they wanted placed in this. And Mm -hmm. it's important, I think, to understand in particular the Republic of Ireland's position in this because phase one is a process 
which could be vetoed by any country uh, who could say, well, things are not as we like it, therefore it's not going to proceed to phase two. Phase two, where you've got trade negotiations, won't have any country having a veto. It will be conducted by basically what's called a qualified majority vote. In other words, there'll be a majority of states that are happy with it or the majority of states are not happy with it. Mm -hmm. And that is the basis of phase two. So the only way that Ireland could determine its stake in the way things were going forward was to threaten a veto on phase one. But from the point of view of the United Kingdom, uh, they were concerned to get basically agreement to move to phase two. But equally, the government, the Conservative Party, uh, doesn't have a majority in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. And the only way it can get its legislation through, including on Brexit, was with the support of the Democratic Unionist Party that is in alliance with the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. Therefore, a decision could not be taken on the phase one without the support of the Democratic Unionist Party, which is why you had a, a two-stage. Initially, it looked as if we had a deal, and then suddenly we didn't, and then we did have another deal because yeah. additional words were put in by the Democratic Unionist Party to make the phase one deal acceptable. Mm. So that's broadly where we're up to now. But it's important to try to understand what the phase one deal actually says, what it means, and what it means for us on the border. Okay. And that is very difficult to understand. I think it's written that way, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Broadly it is. It's a bit similar to the Good Friday Agreement in yeah. the sense that it's not completely clear exactly what it does mean. Mm. And that is why there's been a lot of confusion, because it seems to mean all things to all people. In particular, the Democratic Unionist Party insisted that there were words put into the agreement which said that basically that uh, free trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland should not mean there's not free trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And that had to say specifically there would be continued free trade, no barriers between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Now, because you also had an agreement that would be free trade, no barriers between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, and no barriers between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, it seems to mean that there will continue to be free trade between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom as a whole. Uh But if the Republic of Ireland has got free trade with the United Kingdom as a whole, then it means that the rest of the European Union does. In which case, is the United Kingdom really leaving the European yeah, Union at all. That was my and next question. <laughs> yes, and, that's, and that is roughly where we are because we, it's not entirely clear. Hmm. In a sense, what the European Union really is, is two things. Apart from the political institutions, what it is, is a single market and a customs union. The single market means free trade with common rules and regulations to all member states. Mm-hmm. The customs union is a separate principle, which means that you do not have to pay customs duties and tariffs when you trade between different countries that are members of the customs union. But not every country is a member of both bits. So all the countries within the European Union are members both of the single market and the customs union. Mm -hmm. But there are some countries that are not members of the European Union that are members of the single market. And then you've got other countries that are not members of the European Union that are members of the customs union. So, for example, Turkey is a member of the customs union, but it's not a member of the single market and it's not a member of the European Union. However, the United Kingdom has said it will leave both the single market and the customs union. 
there are some people that will say that actually they would prefer it if we stayed in the customs union while leaving the single market. That way you wouldn't have free movement of people and that would deal with the migration question, mm -hmm. but you would have easier trade and you wouldn't have to pay customs. And it looks as if that's probably the, the position the Labour Party is going to adopt, that we okay. stay in the customs union, but we, leave the European un uh, but we leave the European Union single market. So I think one of the other important parts of the deal that was agreed just the other week was in the absence of a deal that there will remain no hard border on the island of Ireland and that there will be free movement of goods and people on this island. So even if phase two collapses, there won't be a border. Is, am I reading that right? Or it, Well, that, that's what most of us think it means. <laughs> but there are some people that don't think it quite means that. Okay. So we still don't have absolute clarity because there's a reference there to the need to maintain free movement on those areas of trade that are written into or referred to in the Good Friday Agreement. Okay. So there's still possibilities that areas outside those four areas that are referenced in the Good Friday Agreement, whether they have free movement. So, for example, energy is specifically a, a free market within Ireland as an island. Mm -hmm. There's also reference to the need to support the all-island economy. But whether you will have people that try and backtrack on what it seems as if the agreement means, that's one of the big open questions to deal Aye. with in the future. So it's still not absolutely certain, despite mm. what it appears to say, that there will be an open border within Ireland. Okay, so the 142 areas of cooperation on a cross-border basis may continue, may not, we wait and see. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a working assumption that we will continue to have an open border. Uh -huh. uh, Theresa May, as Prime Minister, has said again that there will be an open border. But some people looking at the agreement say, well, the agreement doesn't quite say that. Aye. Uh, it's a well-crafted document, I have to say. Well, it either is or it isn't. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> if it I mean. means all things to all people, does it mean it's really well-drafted or does it just mean that you have an argument another day? Aye. Uh, well, it's good Friday agreement stuff where you keep negotiating it, negotiating it until it finally we arrive at some that everybody can understand. But one of the things that is in there, which is very important for us in Northern Ireland, is the fact that the European Union funding programmes in mm. Northern Ireland may continue. And actually, that comes down to the old question of life and Brian. What did the European Union ever, ever do, do for, for us? us? Yeah. And actually, it did quite a number of things. I mean, apart from being involved in the peace process, it also gave us quite a lot of funding. Well, mm. actually, not quite a lot. It gave us a lot of funding. So, for example, yeah. it's helped fund some of the road programmes in Northern Ireland. It's helped pr uh, fund the rail upgrade between Belfast and Derry. It's helped finance really important peace and reconciliation programmes in mm. Northern Ireland. And the European Union has been very keen on this success. And, of course, the other thing in our city is it's given us the peace bridge. Yeah. So all these things have been very important to Northern Ireland, and there is a good chance that these will continue after the divorce. So, for mm. example, both the peace programme and Interreg may continue. And that has been written in that there's likely consideration, likely support for future European Union funding programmes for Northern Ireland and the border areas. Paul, I think one of the things that you're going to help us with is take a wee bit of the uncertainty and fear out of the, out of the Brexit discussion. Because, as you well know, it's like you're loving it along with the rest of us, is that 
it's an uncertainty, I think, that's that's getting to people. The fact that we can't plan, the fact that every time Theresa May opens her mouth about it, the cross-border workers get hit because Sterling takes in all their knock. Hopefully you'll be able to help out and answer some of the questions. So can you tell me the three things that you're going to be doing through this podcast? That Yes, I'll be doing, as best I can, a watch on what's happening in terms of Brexit. So just as we've been talking now about what's phase one and what's phase two, what does the phase one agreement mean, then I will be keeping a close eye on where things are, getting the feeling perhaps of the different governments, the different parties in the Brexit negotiations, and also the local political reactions to things and the the local reactions from community groups. Mm -hmm. You know, how is it affecting people here? Are we seeing a loss of investment as a result of this? Trying to basically keep an eye over the latest developments and give an analysis of that. A key part for me, and something I think that's going to be really important as uh, as our expert, you're going to answer questions that people send in, make your best attempt at answering them in this area of uncertainty. Um, and people can email those in to Brexit at hollywelltrust.com. We'd be delighted to have them in. What are you expecting? Or what kind of questions? Or have you an idea? Any England at all? Well, I guess a lot of people will be concerned about how it affects their day-to-day lives. So, for example, to what extent people will still have a right to live in Northern Ireland if they were not from Northern Ireland? Mm -hmm. Another question may well be, all the people in Northern Ireland that actually have chosen to have Irish passports rather than United Kingdom passport, how are their rights affected? Those people who perhaps live on one side of the border and use the health service or the schooling over the other side of the border... How will they be affected? So mm. those, I think, are some of the, the likely questions. Also, people about pensions. You know, people who have retired in perhaps Northern Ireland have a pension from Spain or somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, how are they affected? So you, a lot of these things are very practical. What are people's rights going to be when they go on holiday? Mm. Will they actually find their, their mobile phone bill suddenly go up? Uh, because at the moment we benefit uh, in Northern Ireland from the fact that our mobile phone bills uh, that are capped effectively. We don't have to pay surcharge for mm. receiving a call from elsewhere in the European Union or receiving a call when we go abroad. And a lot of us that live on the border, I mean, benefit substantially because it means we don't have to worry about roaming charges from the Irish Republic. Even things like that, which actually could mean, you know, £100 a month extra costs if you don't ma- manage your mobile phone very well, for yeah. example. So those things, very practical level, oh, yeah. I, th- I expect to receive questions about. Okay, so everything from the really practical level to, if you like, the, am I going to have the right to appeal to the European Court of Justice? Those types of things and everything in between. That's right. And of course, there's a lot of lack of clarity about the different institutions in the European Union. Mm. And people might want to learn more about the different bits because there's lots of different bits within okay. the European Union. And I suppose then the third part of what it is you'll be doing through this uh, Brexit Focus podcast is, might help with that. It's the Brexit interviews. Can you outline for us how you think they're going to work or who we might be targeting? Yes, um, we want to get a sense of how it affects different communities within Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'm looking to interview people who are in charge of community uh, sector programmes that are financed by the European Union. How are they making plans for future funding? Are they looking to close down? Are they looking to find other ways of getting money? Uh Uh, Or similarly, local employers that have uh, people who... Across the border every day. Um, 
anyone yeah. broadly who's actually involved in some of the negotiations. So it would be nice if we could get some really well-known politicians who to, uh, can answer questions. And yeah. uh, we've already got, in principle, some well-known people that have said they're willing to be interviewed by us. So uh, right. let's not give names at this moment, but yeah. watch this space, listen to this space, and you might be impressed by some of the names that uh, are going to come on. I'm really looking forward to the next 16 months because, as we said in the introduction, this is going to be a 16-month programme, once a month up until the supposed exit in March uh, 19. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Paul, thank you very much. Looking forward to the next one very much. And get in touch if you have any questions. Email on brexit at hollywelltrust.com. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Jeremy. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.